As we come now before the very word of God, please turn in your Bibles if you'd like to read with me to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4. We'll read in just a moment from Matthew 4. But before we do, would you please pray with me? Lord, we know that you, you are light, and in you is no darkness at all. Would you help us to walk in the light as you are in the light, that the truth would be in us? As we hear now from your holy word, would you shine the light of your truth in our hearts? Help us to see these things that we would be led to repent, to believe, and to live faithfully as followers of you. Do all of this by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Matthew in chapter 4. I'll take a number of verses here, but we'll begin in verse uh, 12. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Now when he, the he there is Jesus, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of God. Now, if you were reading Matthew's gospel on your own, uh, which I trust you do from time to time, it's important that we have contact with God's word more than just on a Sunday morning. So if you were reading through on your own, this is the sort of text that many people might, might skim and move on past. It's not, not the most interesting and, and dramatic, lively set of events, and it can be difficult uh, to see what's actually going on here in this text, you know, especially when you compare it to the texts that are on either side of this section. So the text before, where we were last week, is the, the temptation of Jesus, the testing in the wilderness at the hand of Satan where Jesus has been fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, and then there's this big confrontation from the devil who brings three temptations to provision and protection and power, and yet Jesus resists. You know, he passes the test and reveals himself to be truly, truly righteous. It's a, it's a vivid text. That's what comes before. The text after, which Lord willing will take up next week, is where Jesus calls his first disciples. So we see the beginnings of the, of the twelve. Now there's Peter and Andrew and James and John. And Jesus says to them the famous words that many, if not all of us, know already. I will make you fishers of men. We'll get to dive into that uh, next Sunday, I hope. Even if we don't understand what all of these events necessarily mean and all the words mean, we can at least 
usually follow the narrative, get a good sense of the events and what's occurring. This text, however, is different. These events can seem uh, sparse or scattered. There's, there's lots of, of geographical places mentioned, you know, Capernaum and Galilee and the territory of Zebulun, you know, places that you may or may not recognize. There's also a, a significant portion of it is just a straight quotation from the prophet Isaiah, which you may or may not recognize. And so it's easy to look at this and kind of go, hmm, you know, know, give a a shrug and and just kind of move on to the good stuff. You know, it'd be nice if we were talking about Jesus walking on the water or casting out demons or rising from the dead. But I want us to do our best, this morning at least, to, to resist the temptation to skip over texts like these. Even though we're not at the resurrection yet, it's not the most exciting place here to be, it's still important. Matthew, the author, has spilled a lot of ink here for a reason. The Holy Spirit has has guided his writing here for a reason. So as we try to listen to what this says, I think the most important things for us to see about this text, at least what's happening, is that this is a text of transition. Transition in multiple ways. Transition of person, transition of place, transition of prospect, which we'll lean into that last one and talk about what that means in just a little bit. But, but you can see the translation mainly in the last verse. Look at it again. Verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. From that time, it says. If you're looking at another translation, some say, from then on. You don't need to be a Bible expert or some big Greek scholar to see that this phrase marks some sort of pivot here. So, you know, we might use that phrase in other contexts. So, the girl had her very first taste of chocolate ice cream. And from that time, she wanted some every day. You know, or the man tried to milk the cow from behind. And it took one kick. And from that time, I guess the good version is he'd never milked from behind again. The bad version is he struggled to walk again. You know, you can see that that little phrase would mark a pretty significant shift. In this case, the shift is that Jesus has begun to preach from that time. So this is a new season of life for Jesus, if we can call it that. There's only one other major time in the Gospel of Matthew where that phrase appears in the same way. It's later in chapter 16. Uh, let me find it. Verse 21. Here's the other time where we hear that phrase. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So from that time here in chapter 16, that's where Jesus 
shows a marked shift directly toward Jerusalem. He's headed now in this place directly toward the cross, directly toward his death in which he'll become a sacrifice for sin in the place of every believer. This is what we call Jesus's passion. You know that phrase, the passion of the Christ? Passion doesn't mean he's really excited about it or really cares about it. Passion comes from the Latin meaning suffering. It's a season then of his suffering. So from that time marks a major shift in the narrative. So between these two occasions in chapter 16 and then where we are today in chapter 5, we can divide the book into three main sections. And before where we are now, there's the preparation of Christ. Where we're about to go into, we're entering into the preaching of Christ. And then where it's all headed is to the passion or the suffering of Christ. Now, before we begin to go a little further with this, let me take a really short, I hope, rabbit trail. We also have seasons of life that are marked by various things as well. You maybe can look back on your own life and see moments in time where there was a shift from that time. Seasons that may have been marked by a, you know, schooling. From that time, I began my schooling. Or seasons that are marked by a significant job change. Or seasons that are marked by parenting. Or seasons of suffering. Of loss. Where everything changes from that time. And it is good for us to take stock of what our seasons are marked by. As far as we're able to take agency, decision over these sorts of things, at least to see what it is that we have given ourselves to and whether or not it honors God. Because the very last thing we want is something like this. From that time, I was retired. That's the last thing we want. From that time, I was retired. That's not because retirement isn't good or isn't in some way desirable. In many ways, it is. But because we want our seasons to be marked by what something is, not what it's not. Not to be, to be marked by what we do, not by what we don't do. So instead of saying, from that time I was retired, instead to have it be something like, from that time I served in a hospital as a volunteer, or from that time I took special care of my family, or from that time I was devoted to prayer. Can you imagine a season that is marked by that? To be known as one who was devoted to prayer from that time. That time might even be today, by the way. Today might be the day that God marks a significant shift in your time from this very moment. It is worth uh, considering There's my rabbit trail. 
Let me sit back on the path here. The transition, at least for Jesus, is that from that time, he began to preach. Now, this doesn't mean that this is the only season that he preached, that he never preached before, or when, you know, during his season of suffering, he never preached. Of course, there's a lot of overlap in any season, you know, even days of winter. Occasionally, we get days like today that feel a little bit more like a taste of spring, which is very pleasant to have once in a while. Of course, there's overlap, but the season of life is mainly marked now by preaching. The summary, then, of Jesus' season of preaching is summarized all in one sentence. If you look again in verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, here's the summary, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his summary. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's different than the message, summary message, we might hear from a lot of preachers today. Maybe even, I suppose, if I'm honest for myself, the summary of some preachers preaching might be, God loves you. Or here, a summary of God empowers you, or God saves you, which all those things are true, all those things are good, all those things are, are things that Jesus affirms as well. But the preaching, at least, that comes from the mouth of Jesus is that God is king over you, and his kingdom is coming, not just from far off. It is here. It is so close that you could reach out and touch it with the edge of your fingertips. So because that kingdom is at hand, then repent. Turn from your sin to God. That is, orient your life around God, not yourself. That's his message here. And it's not a new message. The transi transition from that time is not about the message itself. You might remember, if you've been with us, that this is the exact same message of John the Baptist uh, some short time earlier. We see back in chapter 3, verse 1, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Here it is. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Identical. So the big shift here is not in the content of the message. It's in the person and the place of the message. So in this sense, it's sort of like the Olympic closing ceremony. Got to weave the Olympics into the sermon somehow because I just love Olympics. You know, if you, if you watch the closing ceremony, which apparently nobody did, I did, uh, but they, they take the Olympic flag down the pole, some guy, you know, has to bring it down, and they give it to the mayor of that city, which this time was, was uh, the mayor of Beijing, and then that guy hands it off to the mayor, might be wrong, some other mayor. And so they've got the same flag, both holding the Olympic flag, same stuff, different person, different place. That's what's happening here. So you can see the transition is that at the beginning of the text we read in verse 12, the start of this is that John the Baptist, the guy who had the flag before, has now been arrested. We don't get any details here, but we later learn that the guy who arrested him was King Herod, the guy that eventually cuts his head off. And John's ministry was to prepare the way of the Lord. 
But that season is now coming to a close. It's now the Lord himself who's going to take up his own ministry. And he's going to take that, transition that into a new place. So as Jesus learns about John's arrest, we don't know why he does this, maybe matters of safety or some other reason, I don't know. For some reason, when he learns of, of John's arrest, Jesus leaves the area where he was. He was in the, you know, the Jordan River Valley where he was baptized in the wilderness of Judea, and, and he goes back to the region of Galilee where his hometown of Nazareth is, where he grew up, but he doesn't stay there. For some reason, he makes a new home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And Jesus, throughout the rest of Matthew, is going to be traveling around a lot. He's bouncing from place to place in the region. But this is his new home base. Now, if geography gets confusing to you, well, me too. I, you know, I use GPS just like the best of us. We don't need to map out all these locations. You don't need to know all these cities. You don't need to know much about where we are at all. We just need to know that Matthew, the author, marks this transition to a new place as a sort of fulfillment of the very old words of the prophet Isaiah. You see it? That's where he says in verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, which means the biggest transition is not just a person or a place, it's a transition of prospect. That is, there's going to be a new outlook for the future. The biggest shift here is for this people in this region who are described as ones who dwell in darkness. More than that, they're dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, he says. What exactly does this mean? Whenever we get into prophecy, I know it's a little sticky. Hang with me. I'll do the best I can to be clear and concise about this. To get what's going on with, with Isaiah, we need to go all the way back 750 years to Isaiah's day. Isaiah lived in Israel in a time when the land was a mess. I mean, it seems like it was often a mess, but it was another, another mess. And the people of God, again, continued to rebel against the Lord, despite warning after warning after warning from the prophets to repent of their sin. And the Lord is patient, but the Lord is not a pushover. And so the time of the Lord's judgment had come in Isaiah's day. Isaiah gets the fun job as a prophet of being the bearer of bad news. He says the word of the Lord is that the Lord is sending this other king, the king of Assyria, to conquer, to shatter even the people of Israel. And in Isaiah chapter 7, he compares Assyria, this new kingdom who's coming in, to, to the Lord's hired razor, he describes him. Razor as in shaving. And the Lord is going to use this king to shave Israel bald. Shave the head, the beard, and the feet, he says, which is an interesting place to shave. This is not like a nice, clean shave. You put a little aloe on afterward, and you feel nice and fresh. This is the kind of shave where the razor is scraping the skin, leaves it feeling raw and naked 
and ashamed. That's what's ahead of them. It's a grim and dark prospect. That's, that is the nature of sin and sin's just obliterating effects. So when he talks about these people as dwelling in the shadow of death, that's not just a threat or some big poetic metaphor. He means that death very literally. That there is this kind of storm cloud on the horizon that's looming, and death is coming. But then Isaiah, just a little bit later, in chapter 9 of of his book, gives a new prospect to the people. It's not to say that the Lord changed his mind, that the Lord's relenting, and that the Assyrians aren't coming. They are coming, he says. But then Isaiah speaks to the people from the other side of the Syrian invasion, after the time that they've come through and wiped them out, a time where the rod of their oppression is broken, a time when the boot of their warriors is burned up, and the kingdom of Assyria is crushed and has given way to a new kingdom, a kingdom of justice and righteousness and peace, he says, And this king of this new kingdom, we often hear spoken of around Christmas time. You'll recognize this verse in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah is speaking from the other side of a wipeout, of a restoration. And this is now what Matthew is pulling into Jesus' days and describing as a sort of fulfillment. The image that Jesus brings in calling to repentance then is not of, of shaving your beard down to a raw stubble. He, the image that he brings is taking a dark land who is now seeing the buds of the dawning sun in a new kingdom. That means this is a prospect not of coming doom, but of coming hope. And you'll notice, if you look closely here in Matthew, that the light that comes to these people who are in the shadow of death, that light is not sudden. You know, it's not a light switch where you do this little motion, boop, and the light comes on. This is the light of dawning, that as it starts dim, barely on the horizon, and gets brighter and brighter and brighter. This dawning light is just the beginning of a hope. So as Jesus then continues his ministry in this new season of preaching, we'll see the sun continue to rise higher and higher in the sky, and the followers of Jesus will then begin to see Jesus more and more clearly that Jesus is not just a pointer to the light, he's not just talking about the light, that Jesus himself is the light that's coming. He talks about it this way a number of places, but in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
This is the new place or the coming hope for the people that the light of the world is now with them from that time. Now, this transitional shift marks a huge change. Everything is tilted now for them and also for us. Because if the light is with us, that has some really big implications about a lot of parts of life. It has some implications about how we relate to each other. So so we're spoken of as people who are in the light of Jesus. That's what the church is, that we we have fellowship with each other, that that we love one another. That's a good thing. It's also a hard thing. There's good and hard work of having to repent and forgive each other, but we're now in the light of Christ together. But there's also implications for how we relate to unbelievers, people who are outside the church. So because of Jesus, we are now also the light of the world as he is the light of the world. Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they will see your good deeds and give glory to God. We're to show the glory of God. And we even see sometimes what that looks like more specifically. Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, says, we shine as lights in the world specifically by doing all things without grumbling or disputing. Boy, didn't that get in your business? To shine as a light in the world means to do things without grumbling or disputing. That unsettles me. It's tough. Sometimes, you know, whether it's online, which seems to be the worst place of offense, or elsewhere, to sometimes spot the difference between those who are Christians and those who are not. Because it seems like everybody's just in one long complaint department line. And sadly, you know, Christians are, are whining and moaning and fighting and spitting and criticizing and griping just as much as everyone else, if not more so, because we've convinced ourselves that God's on my team, so everything I say must, of course, be the right one. You know, Jesus never once, not once, grumbled about his government leaders. And yet, That's most of the words that we sometimes hear out of Christians' mouths. Jesus is our light. And we're to be the light of the world to unbelievers. We cannot be that if the wick of our candle is stuck in the mud. This affects how we relate to unbelievers. It also just affects how we relate to everything. How's that for a catch-all? You know, C.S. Lewis talked about this uh, in, in one of his essays, In the Weight of Glory. He, he compares his own faith in Jesus uh, to seeing the sun. And he says, I believe that the sun has risen, not just because I see it, but also because I see everything else by it. I believe in the sun, not just because I see it, but because I see everything else by it. Which means that that the light of Jesus is the lens, really, through which we view everything. 
we can see that our work has dignity, whether we feel like it or not, because of the light of Jesus. We can see that the earth is to be cultivated and cared for because of the light of Jesus. We can see that there's value in humans, all humans, from conception to their last breath because of the light of Jesus. We can see all the beauty in art and architecture because of the light of Jesus. We can see courage in the midst of very scary Russian-Ukrainian war because of the light of Jesus. We can have hope in the midst of wars and rumors of wars because of the light of Jesus, and there's just good reason to get up in the morning because of the light of Jesus. Jesus is the very radiance of God, and it's by Jesus that everything is illuminated. But, but, we cannot live in the light of Jesus unless we have one thing. You may already guess this. We can't live in the light of Jesus unless we have one thing. Open eyes. Must have open eyes. It does not matter how much light is in the room if your eyes are pinched shut. It does not matter how much sun is in the sky if your head is buried in the sand. So listen, open your eyes and see. Not just with the eyes of your head, with the eyes of your heart. Open your eyes, that is, put your faith in Jesus. Jesus told us the one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. So while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in the light of the world, from that time you belong to Jesus and no darkness can ever overcome him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you would shine light out of darkness into our hearts. We know that the feeble gods of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ. Do not make that true of us. Take off the blinders of our hearts. Open our eyes to see you that we would repent of our sin, put faith in Jesus, and dwell in the coming kingdom. We ask all of this to you, and we trust your ways in it. As we give all praise to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.